You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, titled Preclinical Stage Alzheimer's Disease, Characterizing and Defining the Transition Between Normal and Pathological Cognitive Aging. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Richard Caselli from the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Now, turning to neuropathology, not everything wonderful comes out of Arizona. This was a study done in Finland, and it was published in Annals of Neurology, and I'd certainly recommend if anybody is not familiar with this study that you go back and look at it, Annals of Neurology, Cook et al., 2009, a really disgusting title of their cohort, considering these are, this is an autopsy study. But what I found... <laughs> What I found very interesting about this study was the number of young people that are in it. So this is autopsy study that includes 109 people aged 50 to 59, sort of the age we're most interested in from the preclinical Alzheimer's standpoint. And in fact, they did have some ApoE4 carriers. And 40% of E4 carriers dying between the ages of 50 and 59 with no dementia, and you can easily believe that, they're very young, you know, that's when it all starts. Half this audience, or at least all the teachers in this audience, are going to be in trouble. Forty percent of people who are E4 carriers between age 50 and 59 have cortical amyloid deposition. Cortical amyloid is abnormal. You're not supposed to have any. Neurofibrillary tangles are pretty much an invariant accompaniment of normal aging, but not typically starting at age 50 to 59. Yet in 50 to 59-year-olds, again, about 40% of the people in this tasty cohort had neurofibrillary tangles. So neuropathological evidence of these Alzheimer-like changes in a very young group of E4 carriers. Work that we did here, and this is based on the Sun Health Research Institute brain bank data, much older, 82 to 83. We had 42 ApoE4 carriers in this group. And what we were basically looking for was in this non-demented population, was there any difference in the burden of Alzheimer pathology? What we found was that if you looked at total amyloid, meaning not just the neuritic plaques that are sort of equated with Alzheimer's disease, but the more benign non-cord or diffuse plaques that are thought to be just benign, meaning nothing, that the total amount of amyloid was substantially increased in the ApoE4 carriers compared to the non-carriers. And that was true in every single subregion that we looked at. If we looked just at neuritic plaques, that was a small fraction of the total, and it didn't significantly differ between the two groups. If we looked at vascular amyloid, we saw exactly the same thing, that there was a higher burden of vascular amyloid in the ApoE4 carriers than in the non-carriers. And again, we saw that in each of the individual subsectors. When we looked at neurofibrillary tangles, like with the neuritic plaques, we didn't see a difference between the groups. So what this is telling us is that people who are dying without dementia, who look pretty much normal for their age, have a higher burden of amyloid in their brain. It's not specifically the type of amyloid that one normally equates with Alzheimer's, but when we see this kind of a relationship, you have to start to wonder. And there was another paper in neurology that I don't have mentioned in my talk that looked at E2 carriers and found that E2, which is protective against Alzheimer's, actually engendered a lower burden of amyloid in the brain 
than E3 homozygotes. Let me make sure I got that point across. So an E3 homozygote, somebody who's just an E3, that's an E4 non-carrier. That's normal. That's the most common genotype there is. And yet these people with this modestly protective allele had even less amyloid burden than normal people. So it raises the question, is any amount of amyloid normal? And, you know, as I said in my editorial, how much is not enough before you start saying, wow, this might be a preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease. It gets a little murky. Turning now to the neuropsychology, because I'd like to argue that, you know, you can see these pathological changes, you can see these imaging changes, but, you know, people don't function on the basis of what their brain scan shows. They function on the basis of how they can think, how they function. So is there actually any clinical consequence to this, at least as defined by cognitive function. So this is sort of represented the culmination of our work at least a couple of years ago, and at this point this was looking at the longitudinal data that we'd accrued on about 815 or 819 people, including almost 500 non-carriers, 238 heterozygotes, and 79 E4 homozygotes. Although these were the mean ages, the age distribution went from the 20s up to about age 89. So we had a very broad span in here. This is a well-educated group. Mean follow-up duration was about five years at this point. And we used as an outcome measure the long-term memory score of the AVLT. For those of you who might not be familiar with that test, this is it. It's a 15-word learning list, which certainly you know, makes the full scene mini mental status examination look like kindergarten. And it's presented over five learning trials. After doing that, there's then a distractor list, B, that's given just to annoy the patient and then they're asked to recall list B, and then they're asked to recall you know, the words from the original list. That's sort of a short delay memory test. Then they go and they do their block design tests and other things, and 20, 30 minutes later, the examiner comes back and says, now what were the words in that list that I gave you before? And that's the long-term memory score that we're using as our outcome measure. And what we found was until about age 55, Homozyg um, carriers and non-carriers get a little better on the test over serial administrations. So people, whether they have the gene or not, learn the test when they're given it more than once, and that's normal. They start to flatten out as we get into our 50s. And around age 55, the lines begin to separate, and they keep separating. And we did not include in here anybody who developed mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Okay? So these are all people who started looking normal and ended looking normal. And yet, even though that was true, we saw this separation of the lines, and it was statistically significant. And for the neuropsychologists in the audience, I think you'll agree that, you know, somebody at 80 with an AVLT long-term memory score of 7 or 8, that's a pretty normal-looking person. So what we've got now is actually a clinical correlate to go along with those pathological changes and those imaging changes, which kind of completes the picture. Now, what might be causing that change? I've showed you a little bit about the amyloid pattern already and, and made the point that it's not really heavily deposited in that area of the brain. But as Brad Hyman showed way, way long ago, it's amazing how short some people's memories are who review these papers, that the distribution of neurofibrillary tangles in the medial temporal lobe essentially de-afferents and de-efferents the hippocampal formation and constitutes the basis for the amnestic syndrome of Alzheimer's disease. And that's what I think 
is likely the case. We did not kill these people and dissect their brains to find out yet, but eventually, you know, we may get more information as they come to autopsy. But again, a lot of time is going to pass before that happens. Now, we've also added to this the observation of what do cerebrovascular risk factors add to the picture? We know that cerebrovascular risk factors, A, cause stroke, and that's certainly bad for cognition. B, are associated with small vessel cerebrovascular disease. It doesn't always present as an obvious clinical stroke, but with a gradually increasing vascular burden in the brain, it's certainly not good for our cognition either. But the cognitive pattern of vascular dementia, the pattern of power outages in that big house of the mind, is generally discernible from what you see in what I'll call at least pure Alzheimer's, although the two tend to overlap quite a bit. And because they overlap so much, there's been a lot of question about do vascular factors actually cause Alzheimer's disease? And so we wanted to look at what happens on this memory outcome measure, which as I've shown you, is a fairly sensitive marker for preclinical Alzheimer's. If we were to layer on top of APOE4 cerebrovascular risk factors. Now, because there are practical limitations in terms of the end of our study, hundreds of people may sound like a lot, but when you start dividing it up into different genetic subgroups and then add into that four different cerebrovascular risk factors, the numbers get pretty small pretty quick. So what I'm going to show you here is the result of combining any or all of the main four, hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, hypercholesterolemia. And I want to point out that if we just take any of those four, more than half of all of our folks, in fact almost 60%, have at least one of those things. And I don't think it's because we're looking at a particularly sick population. This is a normal population. If we look at diabetes, it's not particularly elevated in our group. If you look at hypertension, any one of these things doesn't really stand out. But when you combine them all, that's when you tend to see, you appreciate just how many people have all of these things. I don't know why we had fewer E4 homozygotes who were diabetic than the other groups, but there seemed to be this interesting sort of reverse gene dose effect, which we're not going to make anything of, just noting it there. And what we saw was this. Now, this is a little bit contrary to some of the largest studies out there, like Framingham and the Honolulu Aging Study. What we found, although we're the only ones to break it down into these genetic subgroups, is that adding the, any CV risk factor, any or all CV risk factor, did nothing as far as the memory trajectories for the APOE4 non-carriers. It did just about nothing for the heterozygotes, too. But when we looked at the homozygotes, we saw a fairly striking effect. So, at least in our cohort, yes, we are seeing an effect, but it's only limited to this very, very high-risk group, and I don't know why that is. Now, I'd like to return to the distribution of amyloid in the brain. This is a study that Steve helped me with in particular. What we see here, again, portrayed a little differently, is the fact that this pattern of amyloid deposition in these preclinical 60-year-olds has a striking frontotemporal preponderance. If I were to tell you that these are patients with frontotemporal dementia, you'd believe it. But they're not. These are just healthy 60-year-old APOE4 carriers. Now, in that study that I just showed you at the AVLT, we did look at a couple of other non-memory-related outcome measures to try to make the point that preclinical Alzheimer's selectively affects memory. It's not affecting everything in general. And so this is just a test called the Controlled Oral Word Association Test, which is a very simple test. 
Tell me all the words that begin with the letter C. You've got a minute. Go. It's a letter fluency task. It's thought to be sensitive to frontal lobe function. And what we found was that, yeah, it is age sensitive, but it didn't seem to really distinguish the genetic subgroups. So does that prove that this does nothing? Well, no, it's only one test. Maybe it's not very sensitive. So in our APOE cohort, but not in our Alzheimer's disease center cohort, we have a lot of other frontal lobe tests. So this is truly now an exploratory study where we threw just through the kitchen sink. This is not one outcome measure. This is everything. All right, we are now challenging the notion that frontal lobe amyloid does anything to you. And what did we find? So we still had a pretty big number, but it's not the same number as in the APOE study I just showed you. And so the first thing I want to illustrate is that we still had, even though this was a smaller cohort, we still found that same APOE4 memory effect. So we think the cohorts are comparable. And to summarize it, any one test might have a correlation with a different one. So just to show you what the R values are of these frontal lobe tests with the AVLT, they're not very high. But we controlled for AVLT anyway, and even if we don't control for AVLT, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really change the results. And so what we're seeing here, first of all, we found nothing for the heterozygotes, essentially. For the homozygotes, we did find something. Comparing the homozygotes to the non-carriers, all three of our mental arithmetic tasks, which are thought to reflect working memory, you could argue that they also reflect other things, but working memory, just be generous to our frontal lobe hypothesis for a minute, you know, certainly is one of the things that's important there, were affected. The PACE-SAT is called the Paced Auditory Serial Attention Task. It's a challenging mental arithmetic test. Of all the tests we give, it's the one test some people refuse to take. It's a very stressful test. There is an effect we're finding on that. We're not finding it on all the other tests that we're doing. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 